Welcome to another episode of Appalachian Shine. This is the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. This is J.C. Swingruber, and I'm back again with Robert Prather, who's the author of The Strange Case of Jonathan Swift and The Real Long John Silver. Robert, welcome back again to another episode of the, of the podcast. Well, thank you for having me back, J.C. I wanted to, picking up on last week's conversation, I wanted to kind of jump into a, a couple of things uh, we talked about um, we alluded to before, but before we get into uh, Jonathan Swift's journal itself, this was a life's work for you. This has been a journey. When did you first discover uh, the legend of the lost uh, Swift Silver Mine, and what was the what was the process that got you into doing a deep dive like no one else has ever done on this? Well. Um... <clears throat> Swift was actually taught in history books uh, when I was in grade school. So it was nothing new to find something about Jonathan Swift in classroom books or magazines. Uh, one of the gentlemen that I did wrote read several articles that he did about Swift was a gentleman by the name of Michael Paul Henson. Uh, wrote several nice uh, articles and he also wrote a couple of books about Swift small booklets that, that yeah. he wrote. Um, but anyway, I primarily became interested, I'd say, in the, the mid to late 80s. And uh, I started doing a little research, very light research on Swift back that far back. Yeah. And that was just due to, uh, I, I was at that time into metal detecting in a big way, and I just wanted to learn a little bit about the legend and play some places that was connected to it. And uh, I actually became interested in it again uh, around 2003. I decided to, to really get into it full, full force and, and uh, instead of just reading some of the existing articles that had been published on Swift, to get into some deep study on it, to really do a full investigation. And so I, I began. Uh, in the summer of 2003 uh, with the investigation and started hitting uh, uh, the deed, deed rooms to county clerk's offices and places like that in their archives. Going straight to it, you know, the, where do you find a silver mine or a gold mine? It's going to be on somebody's land. Yeah. So I, I wanted to research the land and anything to do with Jonathan Swift. So that's where I began. And I found a lot of different land. Uh, Jonathan Swift, uh, from eastern Kentucky to western Kentucky, owned over 160,000 acres of land. And, uh, and this is just his personal uh, holdings that he had. So that, that was a, a big, uh, he was associated with land in Kentucky and silver mines and things like that, but people really didn't know that he actually owned anything in Kentucky. They just kind of had him coming through the state as a buckskin-wearing pioneer, uh, going through the wilderness mining silver and gold, and that's all they ever really knew about him, but they didn't mm. know he owned land. So to find that he owned this land, and especially in land in the area that the legend was so uh, firmly associated with, was significant to find Swift owning land on the Big Sandy River. To find that uh, this land adjoined uh, a person in the name of Jacob Myers, who was a furnace builder. Uh, 
one of the tracks that adjoins Swift's two tracks in the Paintsville area uh, on the Big Sandy and Levisa River. Uh, Jacob Myers, uh, a very historical gentleman in Kentucky, built the first blast iron furnace, blast iron furnace in Kentucky. And uh, Jonathan Swift was bordering land that uh, these two gentlemen owned. Jacob Myers owned the tract of land that contained the Salt Lake. So you go from there and you find, well, what's salt got to do with anything? Well, it may have. It may have had something to do with this formula or this, these patterns that are start, starting to take shape. You have Swift owning land. You have a furnace maker that owns land right next to him. What's the salt got to do with it? There was an old Spanish uh, process of refining silver called the patio process, and it required tons of salt to purify the silver. And so we have a major salt works where Swift and Jacob Myers were at. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is, it, it's actually on um, John Filson's map of Kentucky shows this salt work, and there's other maps that shows this salt work. And it's right there where Swift owned this property. And it's uh, two, I don't believe in conspiracies, but I don't believe in coincidences too much either. That's, there's, that seems like there would be a solid purpose why those three right there would come together for a single purpose. Absolutely. And you know, before I mention that your book, your book is an adventure in and of itself, but putting this book together was a complete journey. Um, and you talked about going to libraries and, and things like that, digging up deeds. Tell us a little bit about your travels, because you were all over the place putting this puzzle together. Well, I, I did some extensive <clears throat> travel in Kentucky, went to a, a lot of different county clerk's offices. Um, one of the, the first places that I went was Hardin County uh, County Clerk's Office, and they have a wonderful archive there of of their ancient, uh, or the, not ancient, but uh, historical properties, early properties, when it was when Kentucky was still developing. Uh, Hardin County was one of the original counties that came off of Jefferson County. There was three counties in Kentucky to begin with, uh, Fayette, Jefferson, and Lincoln. Well, I was about to say, because back during that time frame, it really wasn't fully developed at all. It was, no, it was still wilderness. Yeah. That's right. When, when Swift was doing his stuff in Kentucky, it was still 95% or more yeah. just wilderness, yeah. and that's what Swift had to deal with. But uh, a lot of the different courthouses, uh, that's especially the ones that Swift was associated with, I, I would go to the county clerk's office and search their files. Got lucky sometimes, other times I didn't come home empty. But I did find <laughs> the important ones. I found the properties that he owned on the Big Sandy, I found the 100,000 acre tract of land, of course, I had to find this through the Library of Virginia, the tract of land, the 100,000 acre tract of land that he was granted by the state of Virginia, that came through the, the Library of Virginia. Also got a lot of my information from the Alice, a couple of the Alexandrias, one in particular uh, library at uh, Alexandria, which was Swift's hometown in Virginia. Uh, Got a lot of good information there regarding newspaper articles that were written on Swift and some of the ads that he would take out in the Alexandria Advertiser and Alexandria Times. Um, 
and from that you learn a great deal about the man. You know, some of the, what was he advertising? He, he was a merchant in Alexandria for around 40 years. That was his primary way of making his, his living was being a merchant. Um, one of the things that he, it's just curious, but one of the things that typically he would run in his ads uh, would be salt. He sold a lot of salt. So it's, it, wouldn't it be interesting that if when he was coming into Kentucky, his barrels may have contained something other than salt that may have been connected to this legend. But going back to Alexandria, those barrels uh, or new barrels could have been filled with salt to sell in his store. Mm -hmm. So it would have made a nice cover if you understand where I'm yeah. coming from. Yeah. Um, silver and gold were coming in and salt going out. And salt at that time was worth a great deal also. Well, it's used to keep food fresh. And there's yes. no refrigeration that back then. Right. So. That was one of its primary uses. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to see if, if you could tell us a little bit about Swift's journal, because this this is a centerpiece of the book, his journal, and then what he had in that book, that, I guess, to help him find later on in years um, the the silver that he had stashed. Uh, um, now, the journal, that how I present the journal is that uh, it was kind of created by different people. I, I don't think it was, uh, I mean, you can read it. You can interpret it that Swift wrote it to himself if you'd like. But personally, it, the ones that I've read don't match up. They may have the dates set too far back for it to actually have worked for Jonathan Swift. And so by doing that, you realize that these things were created by other individuals for various reasons. Of course, there was a lot of land that was sold in Kentucky because Jonathan Swift was associated with it. And uh, some people um, undoubtedly created their own Swift journal and propagated it as uh, coming from Swift himself. But, um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that there is a Swift journal written by Jonathan Swift. I think there's journals that contains information that's probably historically valuable because some of these eyewitness accounts of Swift coming into Kentucky, uh, that's, that's what I think these journals grew out of. Mm -hmm. And it was common practice that back uh, 150, 200 years ago for people to swap their stories on Swift. That was a common practice, and we know that. So um, one of the guys that uh, we know there's a little something to the journals and, and ties in too swift, but we also can re deduce that they weren't created by Swift himself. Okay. I mean, really, what advantage was it uh, for Swift and his men to create a journal like this? It, it really really doesn't make sense to go into some of the detail that he did about that's in some of the journals. But a gentleman by the name of Robert Alley came to uh, the area of Johnson County and uh, he was in search of Swift Silver Mine. And uh, he, 
the journal is connected with Robert Alley. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you'll hear uh, ref the Swift Journal referred to as Robert Alley's Swift Journal. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by going to Johnson County and researching some of the land of that area, of course I found the, the two tracts of land that Swift owned. And I did a survey reconstruction of that. And then, of course, I tied in Jacob Myers and some other people that uh, I made. What you do, you, you take as many of these surveys. You, you can get the survey off, off of the uh, original uh, deed and all that. Yeah. Uh, you have to go to the Kentucky Archives and uh, the library here in, in Frankfurt uh, has records of that also, Schmidt Library. And... Uh, you take those original surveys and you can piece them together. You can take the pole measurement, poles and angles and meets and bounds that's listed on these surveys, put them together and then you can place them, put, once you put them together as a grid, you can lay them over the top of present day topographical maps and kind of figure out where these water courses and all that, that they listed. And by doing that, I, I was able to use about six different properties of. Johnson County area, and I did did an overlay on that, and I, lo and behold, it really hit well on the Levisa Fork, and and the the Salt Lick and all that just matched up perfectly. So we we uh, I know that I had him there, but the funny part about it is I'm gonna go back to Robert Alley, who the guy and the journal journal. Uh, he came to Johnson County looking for the Swift Silver Mine. Well, come to find out that he purchased a lot of land. In Johnson County and that, that's part of the things that didn't really make it into the stories about Alley and the journal and Swift but he did uh, in the mid 1800s Robert Alley came to Johnson County started purchasing land well lo and behold the land that he was purchasing falls right into the area of this grid that I established where, where Swift properties was so he was buying up in the 1850s and 60s he was purchasing land that Jonathan Swift once owned. So that's quite curious. So this guy, so we have a connection there of Robert Alley and a journal and Jonathan Swift. But the journal itself is set too far back in time. He has Swift coming in in the 1760s. And, I mean, we're just... It was probably at just, least 15 years off. Yeah, there just really least. wasn't anything going on like that. Uh, and it, it was way off. Jonathan <clears throat> Swift was actually born in 1764. Yeah, so there's no way. Yeah. yeah. Now you, um, your research was just so impressive on this that you were contacted uh, by a show called America's Book of Secrets, which is the History Channel. Uh, what was that process like? What what role did you play in in that particular uh, episode? Well, that was just a, a small interview. I also did a small interview with uh, Travel Channel. Um, That's right. Yeah. And uh, I was just part of a, a larger show, but they had me talking about Swift and, and my contribution to it. But the show was pretty much what, what they did. It was already kind of set in concrete, and they just added me at the last minute and wasn't able to get into a lot of detail. But okay. on each of those shows, it was a very nice uh, representation. So Yeah, anytime, nice. anytime your book can get on one of those, because those shows are widely watched. And uh, I know that there are Facebook groups that follow uh, Swift Silver, this legend, and the, and you talk about some 
really rabid fans of this legend. I mean, they, these are people who have been hunting for it for years. That's right. And, um, you know, they, they really enjoyed those shows, too. Because his th- Book of Secrets was actually interested in the gold vault. Yeah. That's, that's what the main push that they were on. And they wanted to know, they had heard something about this Jonathan Swift how, that lived back in the late 1700s. What yeah. does he have to do with the gold vault? Well, that, that was one of the things we brought out, that uh, Jonathan Swift's second tract of land that he purchased in Kentucky in 1791 um, contained, like I said, contained 5,000 acres. And put it the way it is, it was in the backyard of the gold vault today. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that coincidence, or what else could it be? And then also, we have this same Jacob Myers, the furnace builder, that uh, adjoins Swift once again on the uh, northwest, and so Myers's property is situated between where the gold vault is today and where the Swift property was. And once again, Myers has the salt lick on his property. Now, people may say, well, hey, this is still a legend. You still have no proof. Now, listen, you actually saw... A silver doubloon. I don't know if you call it a doubloon or would you call it like a, a silver minted piece. Pieces of eight. Yeah, a piece of eight. Um, talk to us a little bit about that and then how your book cover came about because that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, well, the pieces of eight ties into a gentleman uh, from Letcher County in Kentucky. His name was Bill Gibson. And uh, I met Bill a couple of different times, very fine fella, interviewed him most of one afternoon and uh, got to see some of his coins that he found. Back in the early 1960s, um, Bill uh, was deep into a cave and he came across seven kegs. Uh, they were about to nail kegs, old wooden nail kegs. Uh, he found seven of those things filled with uh, these pieces of eight coins. Yeah. That's a lot of coins. Uh, Approximately 1,600 pounds of these things. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a great deal of money. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, um, he apparently carried out as much as he left. So there's still some left in there, apparently. But uh, anyway, that, that, that's fascinating. So that ties in. And the interesting part about Bill's discovery, he, he always figured that he found something to do with Jonathan Swift. As a matter of fact, he, he, might, he kind of thought that he had discovered the Great Cavern of the Shawnee, which this place that he, this cave that he was in was a great cavern, or is a great cavern. And uh, so he was associating it with the Great Cavern of the Shawnee, which is in legend to be, said to be the storage place for Swiss treasure, that they, uh, over a period of 10 years, brought treasure into Kentucky and stowed it up into this great cave. Well, uh, of course, Bill had that story to go along with, and where he found this treasure was in Pine Mountain. But now here's where it gets interesting. Uh, in legend, uh, one of the gentlemen's or one one of the gentlemen that is associated with the legend is uh, a guy by the name of Montgomery, and he was the coin maker for the group. He actually was a coin maker. He counterfeit coins. Okay. And uh, so anyway, um, where Bill discovered these coins was on the 
Michael Montgomery property that adjoined Swift on the south side. And Montgomery owned 100,000 acres that went to the Pine Mountain in the exact spot where Bill Gibson found these coins. Yeah. And so we have Montgomery, coins, Swift, and it all goes up to the Paintsville area where you, you have Jacob Myers and Swift. So it all ties up. Yeah. Ties in. Well, I wanted to ask you uh, another thing here, I guess as we kind of come to a close. You have a really interesting theory about what the silver was used for. I mean, you had you had talked about how we needed we didn't have a national treasury and we needed one. Can you talk a little bit about that theory? I, I don't want to give away everything in the book because this is a really powerful close and an argument that you had. But uh, give us a little bit about what, what that is. Well, you, you, you may have tipped your hat a little bit at the very beginning in our first interview in that you, you, one of your favorite movies is uh, National Treasure yeah. with Nicolas Cage. And uh, I like that movie too. It's, it's very entertaining and, and somewhat thought-provoking. which gets into the Templars and things like that. But um, uh, my belief is that and everything points toward this and actually it's where it seems to be where history and legend and everything merges it's the only thing that really makes sense is that jonathan swift instead of a buckskin wearing pirate bloodthirsty pirate he was actually a patriot because he was known to have been close friends with george washington and thomas jefferson john adams john adams actually appointed him as consul to several nations and so did uh, thomas jefferson and uh, so anyway, he was tied in, and Swift's father-in-law, Brigadier General Daniel Roberto, was a founding father of this country. So he was, rather than a buckskin, he was a, he was a blue blood. And uh, those guys typically, especially if you're a friend with George Washington, if, you, if Washington had a job for you, you stepped up. If you're willing and able, you would have stepped up and... Uh, Swift did, and I'm certain of that. Uh, his father-in-law, uh, during the Revolutionary War, um, set up a, a lead mining operation. He actually mined for lead, and he was also heavily invested in iron mining. So there's no question that Swift got into uh, his mining through his own father-in-law. Uh, Swift actually did, was uh, owned part of a, a property in uh, up toward Alexandria where he lived um, that, that contained a silver mine. So I found that also. That's one of the things that's revealed in the book. That, that tract of land was called uh, the Long Glades. It was a 1,437-acre tract of land. And that land on, on the north side, uh, a silversmith adjoined him. So all the things start falling into place once you if you want to get into the archives and start digging and start putting the puzzle together, it all falls into place. But then it goes back to what was Swift's purpose in Kentucky? What was he doing here? Well, the geologists will tell you that Kentucky's not rich in silver and gold uh, as far as mining uh, silver and gold here in the state in, in commercial quantities, it can't be done. But so we know that what Swift had to be doing was bringing it in. And so if he was bringing it in to, into Kentucky and putting it in caves, he was safeguarding it. 
So if you're if you're doing something for Washington, you, you could safeguard our treasury. Our first treasury. Yeah. And one of the things that Kentucky had that other states didn't have quite in the abundance that we do is caves. And during the Swift time period, they most most of them were uncharted. So that would have been a valuable asset for George Washington. He just needed willing and able men, young men such as Jonathan Swift to carry out. And somebody like Daniel Roberto, who had already had experience transporting heavy metals across rugged territory uh, to kind of guide him along. You know, having you know, just the, the theory that this was our first national treasury is, is so important, and it's, you know, the pieces fit. It does. And, the pieces uh, do fit. You know, it's, it's a fascinating, like I said, fascinating story, fascinating book that took you literally years to, to put together. Right. Like I said, I started in the summer of 2003. Um, I finished the first edition of the book. I, my publisher was good to me. He actually let me do uh, three different editions of this book. Uh, I didn't, I guess I didn't know when to quit. I, the first one came out in 2007. And then the second edition was published in 2011, and the third edition was published in 2015. So he was good to me and let me have those three editions. Well, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, you're always doing research. Um, we've talked a good bit, and I'm sure you'll have other fascinating topics down the road we can come back and talk more about. Uh, but, Robert Prather, I certainly appreciate you coming back this week. Again, everyone, it's the strange case of Jonathan Swift and the real Long John Silver. Uh, go pick it up on Amazon, and then it's Acclaim Press? Acclaimpress.com. Okay. If somebody wanted to follow you, is, do you have any kind of social media that you do, or is it just... I don't. Don't? Okay. You're probably better off. <laughs> but uh, but uh, thanks again, and um, yeah, any updates on any other books, we'll certainly post it on our, on our social media pages here with the Foundation. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Appalachian Shine. We certainly appreciate each and every one of you. If you have an interest in this topic, um, feel free to share the podcast with friends and family. We're on iTunes. We're also on Spotify, so you can get us right there on your smartphone. And uh, make sure you uh, hit subscribe and uh, follow us and uh, leave a comment for us. Thanks again, everybody, and we will see you on down the road. <laughs>